Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, good evening. You're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Our special report this evening looks into the experiences of expectant mothers as they prepare for childbirth under the shadow of COVID-19. Joining us in studio to discuss Spinafoil TD, Neve Smith, and Chair of the Association for Improvements in Maternity Services, Dr. Cresha Lynch. Tensions brew in Minneapolis as a verdict is set to be delivered in the George Floyd murder trial any minute now. We will be going live to CNN. Images of pints with friends and English beer gardens are hard to swallow as some of our pubs mark 400 days of closure. But as soon as restrictions ease in the north, will people be making a break for the border? And later, we hear about images being harvested from social media and used for exploitation blackmail and manipulation. Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag tonight VMTV. will be crossing live to the United States shortly for more on that upcoming verdict in the George Floyd murder trial. But first this evening, pregnancy and childbirth can be a daunting enough experience in itself, let alone with the added anxieties of this past year. In a special report, Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King looks at the experiences of pregnant women engaging with maternity services in the midst of a global pandemic. This report contains some images of a home birth. Almost 14 months into the pandemic and tight restrictions remain in place at most maternity hospitals nationwide. Women forced to attend appointments alone, partners only allowed in for 20-week scans and during active labour. As NEFID prepares to make recommendations to government that will shape our immediate future, the HSE has begun to acknowledge that the improving COVID situation in Ireland is grounds for maternity restrictions to be reviewed. Hospitals will be reviewing um, the, the, the restrictions and I would be hopeful that they would consider themselves in a position uh, to have a less restrictive policy uh, in the coming weeks. It is the stories of the families who have lived through some of the toughest measures that reveal a deep sense of loneliness and trauma experienced by women during the crisis. Seven-month-old Bernard was born in September to parents Gary and Michelle. Their second baby, the pregnancy this time round, was a different experience, with Gary forced to stay away from hospital appointments due to the pandemic. It was just strange that I couldn't go in, first of all, for the scans 
and um, couldn't really get the updates firsthand about what was really happening, like, you know, but um, come the day, the actual day itself, like, you know, I was just told to wait in the car and uh, obviously quite anxious to, to find out what was going on. We were texting on the phone all morning um, and he was literally sitting in the car in the rain. I had to kind of keep ringing her, or texting her every couple of minutes to find out what was going on. And then eventually I got to kind of the nod to go up, like, but it was just literally right before surgery that, that I got the shout to go up, like, you know, and I kind of just had to kind of gown up myself and then head in. It's literally not until that point where, you know, it's all systems go that your husband is allowed in. Um, and that's quite tough as well. Were you um, frightened at any point being by yourself? Um, I don't know if frightened is the word, I'd say vulnerable. It's a bit of a shock, like straight away, you're straight up and into it, like, you know, that way you, you kind of, no time to prepare whatsoever, like, so, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just been a, a very strange kind of overall experience, you know. Michelle says it is the support women need most during this time. She points to what she believes is a disconnect between decision makers and the women their policies affect. Nobody will understand how vulnerable you can feel until you're in that situation. Um, you know, there's also a lot of talk when it comes to like prenatal classes and it's a lot about, um, again, it's about labor, it's about the delivery, but what is not kind of, you know, talked about is kind of what happens after that. And that's when people feel most vulnerable when the baby is, you know, in your arms and as overwhelming and as amazing as it is, there is, there is, a, there is vulnerability there at the end of the day. Um, and I think nobody can really understand that until they experience it, but that can't be an excuse either. Um, so there definitely is a disconnect, I would say, between um, you know, what people are saying or, or how they're treating it and, and how women feel um, you know, in hospital or when they come home. For Sarah Butler and her partner, they chose a home birth for their third baby who was born during the first month of lockdown. I love you so much. Women and birthing people recognise that um, the birth experience is hugely influential um, and it really affects your mental health as well as your physical health to have a birth that is aligned with your values um, and that makes you feel as powerful and as whole um, as you can um, during the experience and afterwards. Um, and I know the, the midwife that I was using, yes, yeah, she was inundated after, um, just, I, I birthed just as Ireland's first level five lockdown um, happened. Um, I had a home birth then and I know, yes, yeah, you're getting loads of calls from people who were, um, you know, looking to find out about it. The HSE has seen a 30% increase in the number of home births during the pandemic, with 206 babies delivered at home in 2020. Colette Donnelly is a midwife who specialises in home birth. She says many mothers are making this choice to ensure they can share the full birth experience with their partner. It is a big part. The fact the partner is not going to be allowed to be with them for the duration of the labour. This is a huge impact. Uh, also the early postnatal period when the baby is born, uh, especially first time mothers, will require a lot of support. And they have kind of worked on that together. For most women, it is a big factor in choosing the home birth. To have the security to know their partner will be here all the time, as long as they want them to be there. And uh, he will be able to help them in the very, very early days as well. Uh, the fear of COVID is probably 
lot less than what it was this time last year. Everybody has learned to manage it, I suppose, better. But the, the fear of not having your partner with you whether the labor lasts three hours or three days uh, <laughs> is, a, is a big issue. So there's your baby, there's a little head. Heart going like a train. Back in the hospital setting, Jennifer Horton attends a scan alone. Her partner waits in the car. Now, at almost 31 weeks, this is the couple's second pregnancy since the pandemic began. They lost a baby last year, news that Jennifer had to learn on her own. Back in August, um, we were very unlucky that we suffered a miscarriage. It's just one of those things that happens. There was no explanation, no reason behind it, but you're just kind of left. And that was it. Um, and then I obviously had to go and retell that to my partner. Jennifer is one of the many expectant mothers who've spoken about the loneliness and trauma they felt over this past year. I lost my first baby in the first lockdown. My husband didn't get to come into any of the hospital visits. It was extremely upsetting being alone throughout all of that, trying to advocate for myself in a sea of tears. These are life-changing experiences that we are having to deal with alone. The director of the HSC Women and Infants programme has urged maternity units across the country to review the restrictions currently in place. Dr Peter McKenna said the improving COVID-19 situation now means maternity hospitals can consider easing measures which have kept partners out of key appointments during the pandemic. Maternity units should be reviewing their policy on a, on a weekly basis anyway um, and they should be keeping a record of this and these should be available to the public so that they can explain why the restrictions that are there are considered necessary in that particular unit. So that should be happening in any event presently. So what we would hope is that the two factors that have changed, which we've already alluded to, uh, will allow people to take a more um, liberal view of the restrictions, insofar as they can keeping the fact that health is the priority of any hospital. And that's what's going to be keeping Nana busy. <laughs> it is now down to each maternity unit across the country to decide, does the benefit of easing restrictions now finally outweigh the risk? And our thanks to Zara King for that special report. Now to our panel, I'm going to go to you first of all. Cretia, it's so clear and so sad that across the board, whether it was your first pregnancy or your fifth baby, whether you were in public or private, if you were in Donegal or Dublin, you were affected by this. And a lot of women have been left quite traumatised by it. Oh, without a doubt. And I think what we have to realise is that the original mistake, I think, that was made was that partners were seen as visitors. And if we could go back and we could do it all over again, I think perhaps we wouldn't have made that mistake. We would have looked as to how we could integrate partners in with the people that are giving birth as a unit. Because, of course, um, I know you'll experience it soon, uh, but a partner is an integral part of the process. Uh, a partner is not a visitor. It's not like you're going to visit Auntie May who's just had an appendix. You know, they're not a visitor who comes with grapes. They are a very integral part of the whole process. And partners have been 
separated, they felt disconnected, um, they've been in cold car parks, I mean people have said that in the report, but also in those very first days and certainly in the early part of the lockdown, we found that so many people reported, especially mums who had cesarean births, that they were really utterly alone for up to five, six, seven days, their partners didn't see the baby, Partners have responded, uh, reported issues associated with bonding. So it is, uh, I think it's in a way, it's all very well afterwards to have a, a plan to deal with a pandemic. But I think that as soon as we can start to stop seeing partners as visitors and seeing them as an integral part of the process, we can move forwards. Would you agree with that, Neve, or do you think, look, at the time, we had no other option. You know, we didn't know enough about COVID-19 and there were real fears, I suppose, about allowing COVID-19 into a maternity unit or were mistakes made? Well, of course, you know, things are always easier in hindsight, Kira, and we have to be honest with ourselves and saying that nobody knew what we were dealing with at the beginning of COVID. And of course, public health trumped everything. And we did see a lot of our hospitals overrun with COVID. Uh, and you take Cavan General Hospital, where there's a maternity unit, there's an MLU unit, which is very unique to its hospital as well, but lots of other clinical medical um, units within that hospital too. So it wasn't one of those hospitals that was specifically maternity and, and it couldn't be isolated in that way. So of course, you know, um, I'm sure things would be done differently and I'm delighted to hear Dr McKenna saying tonight that, you know, each hospital unit should kind of take control, take authority of their own situation and the figures and their ICU numbers, their patients coming through their doors with COVID and take that into consideration and start to begin to loosen restrictions for the partner's sake for the, because I do think, uh, and we've heard it there tonight very eloquently and clearly that it has been very traumatic for mums. Um, it was interesting to hear one of the say in that report there was a disconnect between those who were making these decisions and the experiences of you know mums and dads and partners was the fact that there were so few female voices around the decision making table particularly for the first six months of this pandemic did that have an impact I think it's had an impact on every walk of life through this pandemic here if I'm being honest of course it has had uh, and as I said it is a regrettable that probably if the pandemic was happening and then we knew as much as we did now, the decisions made then would be quite different. Um, and I think, you know, as you said, you know, in every industry, um, pertaining to government and, and decisions that NEFET have made, you know, the absence maybe of uh, the female input to these decisions may have had an input if we're being honest with ourselves. Yes, of course. And we heard the HSE saying now that, you know, it is time for maternity hospitals to look at some of the restrictions. But is there a difficulty now because we have the Rotunda Hospital, for example, has eased some of the restrictions, but have they gone far enough or are they still a little bit too conservative, do you think, Grisha? Well, I don't think that they've gone far enough at all. And I thought it was very interesting to hear Peter McKenna say in that report that there should be publicly available transparent uh, risk assessments available and we know for a fact that those don't exist in many hospitals so it's very difficult then to audit which restrictions are working well and are important and are having a great effect and which restri restrictions perhaps could be eased at this point so that's certainly something we've been asking and we've never received an answer on that and I think that what we need now is we need guidance we need protocols and we need some sort of uh, roadmap for the maternity services themselves I don't think it's enough 
enough to leave it to hospitals to do what they want. The whole point of a national maternity strategy, which we're still working with, is that we don't have hospitals going rogue and acting as fiefdoms and doing what they want. The idea is that there is a central control, there is central governance, and I think that we need people like Dr. McKenna and others within the HSE, within the Department of Health, to stand up and say, these are the basic things that you really have to look at. Now, see if you can find a way of looking at those. And if you can't, fair enough, but really trying to give guidance, suggest protocols, because otherwise I can see this going on for longer. Mm. And I think... And as, it will as, become you know, a bit of a geographical lottery, won't it, Sneef? And think, that's going to be really difficult for expectant mothers and their partners. I think one thing that's been very interesting there in your report is the significant increase that we've seen on home births. I think it was 206 that Sarah talked about. And as I said, there's the MLU service in Cavan General Hospital and the same in our Lourdes and Drada. And one of the very important aspects of the National Maternity Strategy is that we see more MLUs rolled out, that that holistic plan is an option for expectant mums is there and in place. And if we've seen this dramatic increase, which we have obviously on, on home births, that should be taken into consideration too, because uh, the pandemic is here with us and it's here for some time to, to come. And while figures are going in the right direction, we heard um, Dr. Gascon said today that it's, it's we're not out of the woods yet. We still have to be very careful and mindful. But I think when it comes to maternity services, certainly uh, the idea that a partner would be not included and be excluded has had a significant negative impact on expectant mums. But listening to what Krisha was saying there, it's that we need a more uniform approach so we don't allow a hospital to just decide for themselves. Now, is that fair given the fact that, you know, there'll be different infrastructure in hospitals, different size of units, perhaps different vaccinations among staff, different community transmission in different Absolutely. areas? Yeah. Do you think you need to leave it to a hospital side for themselves or should the HSE step in at this point? Well, I think, you know, a, a central message is hugely important and central guidelines. I think you still have to leave a certain amount of authority uh, to the hospital themselves because as we said tonight, you know, uh, and Peter McGinnis suggested that, you know, every hospital is unique and they know their own set of circumstances. They know that who in the hospital and, and hopefully at this stage most of the caregivers have been um, all vaccinated and that the numbers are low. So, I mean, Considering the pandemic that we're in, uh, while yes, there should be a central message, there should be central guidelines and, and operated centrally, I think there has to be a certain amount of authority left to the hospitals involved themselves. Because as I said, take Cabin General, where it's got a maternity unit, it's got an MLU, very different uh, set of circumstances and an environment than, than a hospital that is completely for maternity services. Um, speaking of vaccinations, there has been discussion about whether or not pregnant women should be vaccinated. It appears the advice now is that they should be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Should they be prioritised, do you think, Krisha? Is there evidence to support that? Well, it's difficult, I think, to answer that question. Um, what I will say is that in my experience, the majority, the vast majority of pregnant women tend to cocoon themselves. Most pregnant women do not actually go out even to the local supermarket to do their shopping. They do tend to stay at home. They're probably the number one followers of social distancing and of advice. And all I can say is that people should continue to do that. And obviously, if they have any underlying conditions, they should be prioritised for vaccination. Are government afraid at all of touching that vaccination strategy at this point? I, again, I, I suppose, 
suppose I would agree that, you know, women, they should be a priority. They should uh, be in that cohort of, you know, give, given the option that if they, are, they would like it, they should certainly have the choice. I would like to see that happen for them. All right, we're going to leave it there for the moment because we want to go live to Minneapolis in the United States where the trial of a former police officer for the murder of George Floyd has ended with a guilty verdict on all three counts. The jury has delivered its verdict in the landmark case in the past half an hour and we're joined now by CNN's uh, Camilla Bernal who is in Minneapolis. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I think this verdict has literally only been delivered in the last um, half an hour. Can you tell me what exactly has he been found guilty of? Just going to double check if uh, Camilla can hear us on the line. Camilla, can you hear me here in yeah. studio in Dublin? I can hear you. Oh, you can. But I don't hear any programming. Can you bring us the very latest in terms of the guilty verdict against this police officer? So he was found guilty on all three charges. We're talking guilty on third degree murder, guilty on second degree murder, and guilty on second degree manslaughter. Guilty on all three charges. That is what the Floyd family wanted. That is what many of the activists were hoping for. And they are celebrating. As soon as that verdict was read, you can hear the cheers outside of the Hennepin County Government Center. People who were just relieved and overjoyed with their hands in the air, many of them praying, hugging, and just happy to be witnessing this moment because what they wanted was exactly what they got. Accountability of a police officer who was walked out of that courtroom in handcuffs by sheriff deputies. That was an incredible image that will remain in the minds of many here in the United States and around the world. A police officer was held accountable for killing a black man, for having a knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And so you are hearing the people just driving by, honking, people cheering. This is what they were waiting for and they will be out celebrating tonight. I know there's a little bit of a delay on the line, so apologies to our viewers at home. But Camilla, I'm wondering how unusual is it for a police officer in the United States to be found guilty of murder for killing somebody in the line of duty? It's not easy to convict a police officer. They are in many occasions given the benefit of the doubt. It is not easy and it is not common to see police officers testifying against a police officer. It is rare. You don't normally see this in the courtroom, but in this case, you saw the chief of police, Chief Arredondo, taking the stand and testifying and saying that this was not okay, that this was not part of the training, that this was not part of the policy, that this is not what police officers stand up, uh, stand for. And one of the things that was very important was the prosecution made this clear. This was not a trial against the police department. This was a trial against Derek Chauvin and they wanted him to be held accountable because they say that this essentially will help other police officers realize that what he did was wrong. And it is just 
uncommon to see police officers convicted, but they were able to do so in this case. We are waiting to hear from the attorney general, from those prosecutors, and they got the job done. And so they will speak to the public, but they were able to get a police officer convicted on three different charges. And so that is why people are out celebrating today. And you mentioned, and we're just looking at the scenes of people celebrating in Minneapolis, but other states in America, and I'm sure Minneapolis is the same, were preparing for scenes of tension, protests, unrest, notwithstanding what the verdict was going to be. So I take it, uh, Camilla, that there will be people who are not happy with this verdict. Do we expect to see them take to the streets too? It's possible, uh, but it is unlikely. I think you will hear uh, and see more people out celebrating. And so nonetheless, you are going to have those security measures in place because there are going to be crowds out in the streets tonight, no matter uh, what side of the aisle they stand on or no matter where they fall when it comes to this issue. And we know that Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, they are prepared for whatever happens tonight. There are about 3,000 members of the National Guard here. Uh, the Minneapolis Police Department is leading the operation. And no matter where you go, you will see officers, you will see law enforcement in the streets. And they have specifically said that National Guard members are there not just to keep people safe and businesses safe, but to protect everyone's right to protest. That is a right uh, given to the American people by the First Amendment, and those members of the National Guard will make sure that they're able to do so, whether it's here in Minneapolis or in many other states where members of the National Guard have been activated. Of course, you're hearing so many people honking. People just do not want to be quiet at this moment. They want to be heard. They want to celebrate, and that's what you're hearing here behind me. Do we have any idea of the type of sentence that Derek Chauvin will face, and is it likely that he is going to appeal? So here is the deal with sentencing. It is not going to happen today, but we know that because uh, these three charges here in the state of Minnesota run uh, concurrently, the maximum sentence here is 40 years. That's for that second degree murder. You get 25 years for the third degree murder and 10 years for the second degree murder. But because they run at the same time, the maximum would be 40 years. But we do know that the prosecution already announced that they're going to try to get a longer sentence. This is something they can file ahead of time and request from the court. Normally, it's something that a jury would decide on, but Derek Chauvin waived his rights for a jury to decide on this. So it is Judge Cahill who will decide whether or not Derek Chauvin will face a longer sentence. But at the moment, as the rules and laws are here in the state, 40 years would be the maximum sentence for that second-degree murder charge. And finally, Camilla, is there any sense that this guilty verdict will go in some way to try and heal some of the racial divisions that we have seen in America, particularly uh, since his death last year? I think this absolutely helps because what people in America were hoping for was accountability. And many uh, black leaders across this country were asking not just for accountability, but also for a seat at the table. And I think that people are listening. People are watching this verdict and realizing that, yes, police officers can be held accountable and they need uh, essentially to 
look at what the policies are, to look at what the community policing relations are. And so this will have a change here in Minneapolis and around the country because we now know that police officers here in this country will be held accountable. Whether you have a video or not, uh, many members of the black community and many uh, people of color in this country are wanting authorities to know that people can be held accountable for their actions, whether they're a police officer or not. Uh, a jury can convict, and that moving forward, I think, will be the biggest change and the biggest conversation starter when it comes to having these conversations about policing and race relations in America. We're going to have to leave it there, Camilla Bernal, but thank you so much for bringing us uh, that breaking news. Quite incredible scenes in Minneapolis uh, there. Um, Derek Chauvin found guilty on all charges uh, against him. My thanks to Dr. Cresha Lynch and Eve Smith will be staying with us. And after the break, Ian O'Doherty on public despondency and the reopening of Irish pubs. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ian O'Doherty, you're very welcome to the programme. Uh, Ian, look, you're not a vintner, you've no links to no. pubs, but I think it is fair to say... I'm, I'm pretty what you call a stakeholder in that I do like pubs, <laughs> but I don't have any official. You do like a pub, and you would say, actually, you have really missed the pub over the last 14 months. The social element it's of the pub. It's only in the last month or two, actually. I was surprised at my own self. I mean, the, the important thing to remember is that today is a landmark. It's 400th consecutive day that the traditional pubs in Ireland have been shut. Um, now, if you had said to somebody in 2019 that Ireland would go 400 days without a pub, they would have thought you'd gone crazy. You know, like, it just sounds like crazy talk. So, but, but that's the kind of, it's the weird environment that we're in now. Um, now, at the time, on March 16th, really, when the lockdown kicked in, um, people were saying about, oh, the pubs, and then everybody was going, oh, it doesn't make any difference. You know, we've you know, we, the slightly bigger issue of a global pandemic going on rather than you can get a pint or whatever. And certainly that was my attitude as well. Um, but what I've noticed over the last sort of 13 months is you just kind of miss the little things, the, the, the normal things. And what I was saying at the end of today is it doesn't matter whether people would prefer that we lived in a cafe culture or whether they would prefer if we, people didn't go to pubs. In Ireland, a pub is a cradle to a grave thing in the sense that, you know, you're christening. Will probably, but the day you're christened will probably be the first day you're brought to a pub because everybody <laughs> goes to the pub for a christening. And the day of your funeral will be the last day you're brought to a pub because everybody will go to the pub for a week. Um, that's just the way we are. It's to do with our climate, it's to do with our nature, it's to do with our personalities. And 
as much as I don't necessarily miss going out and meeting loads of lads and all that, but that's because I'm in my 40s. You know, if I was in my 20s, I'd be completely losing my rasher about these things. What I actually miss is just going in for a pint and reading the paper after work. It's, again, the, the, the most simple and the most basic. And it's not... The, the, the important thing to remember is that the pub doesn't represent drink. Because as we've learned in the last year, anybody can buy as much drink as they want in the local off-license or the supermarket. It's about the fact that the pub in Ireland is the backbone of our community. And it's where people socialise. And that's what and people do are really... think perhaps COVID has been a good opportunity to break that? Well, no, because why on earth will we ever look at a pandemic as a good opportunity to tutor us in the ways of righteousness? Um, if you want to break your habits, break your own habits. You don't need, you know, COVID or coronavirus to come in and do that. And it's, I do feel that there's been a very sneery attitude towards pubs um, that we've seen in the course of the last year because there's quite a lot of people, a lot of the quangos, the anti-booze quangos, that are very well funded by the government, which means they're very well funded by us, the taxpayer. Um, and they're quite happy with this and they would quite like to see a scenario where the pubs never actually come back up and open. But the thing about it is, that's none of their bloody business. And people are just cheesed off. I mean, I have neighbours who might go to the pub once a month and they're really, really missing it now because it represents everything else that they've lost. Um, we had Professor Jack Lambert on the programme last night, um, a consultant on in infectious diseases, and he said, look, it's time for this government now to take some risks. It's time to look at outdoor dining and it's time to start treating Irish adults as adults and not just assume that as soon as there's alcohol on the table that we all, you know, lose the run of ourselves and forget all of the rules. Do you think there is that slightly, as you say, sneery attitude to pubs and alcohol in Ireland? Or is it well, justified? Well, I think Ian has really nailed it there when he said that pubs are so much more than a place that we can go and get alcohol. Because, you know, we have very a big problem I suppose with cheap alcohol and that people can go to their big chain superstores and get you know spend a fraction of money on you know copious amounts of alcohol and that has, is having a really negative impact on the population uh, in lo at loads of different levels but the, the, the pub represents something far more than that and I, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm a rural TD and I'm thinking of you know a rural constituency where there's little pubs dotted around a crossroads you know where people of all ages it's not even fair to say the older generation the younger generation the middle-aged generation and older generation that that's where they go and it's not to drink copious amounts of alcohol it can be to have one or two drinks read the paper have a chat catch up about the weekend and have we been and too to dismissive of that do you think well I, I do we, we look we, we did see the problem when the restrictions were left to Kira at Christmas there's no doubt about it things got out of control and you saw numbers going through the roof and in terms of the COVID cases and that had a massive impact on our hospitals and public health has to Trump without sounding, you know, repetitive about it. it. It is hugely important. But we have to look at ways of opening. And I know in fairness to, to Minister Martin, we had her in at our office committee meeting today. We had this very, very important discussion between the hospitality sector and the measures that government have taken to ensure that we look at, I suppose, repurposing and, and reimagining the pub again as we have to and thinking about the outdoor dining. The significant money after being put aside to be delivered through Fall to Ireland and our local authorities to really look at that concept of what you see is that in the going European to be enough countries. though? Ian? No, because I honestly think I mean, there's more than 50,000 people have been affected in the pub trade, staff, frontline staff, and that's not including delivery people and brewery people and stuff like that. I think a lot of pubs simply aren't going to be coming back even now if we're to open up things up tomorrow. I do think one of the, one of the many things that we've learned over the last year is that I always laboured under the impression that the Vintners were an incredibly powerful lobby group 
And we were always told, you know, the farmers were really powerful and then the publicans were really powerful. Um, I think what the Vintners have proved over the last 13 months is that they have no power and they have no friends in the government whatsoever. Um, but is that not because the government, oh, because this was, you know, a once in a lifetime, once in three lifetimes nearly, um, global pandemic, that public health had to trump everything and that a lot of the evidence that was out there did link um, indoor environments where people are gathering, where alcohol is being drank, where masks are being taken off with an increase in COVID cases? No, well, the, the thing is, I mean, that stands up only on a very superficial analysis, to be honest with you, because if you look at it, I mean, I found one of the things that really struck me over the Christmas was that the local where I live, they were doing takeaway pints and everybody was in the car park. I was out walking the dogs at night and everybody was in the car park and because it was cold, it was raining, it was December, everybody was huddled up together. Um, now, they were perfectly entitled to have their takeaway points because we were allowed to do that at the time. And I remember just being struck by the incredible incongruity that they would have been, everybody would have been so much safer mm. being well regulated and well marshaled in a pub that was maintaining table distance and, and social distancing rather than having 150 people in a car park where human nature is that you're gathering together and people weren't wearing masks and stuff like that. So, look, everybody accepts. And it's one of the things that I've said in the piece today, and I've, I've obviously said it, I mean, I've obeyed all the rules, I've worn the masks, I've obeyed social distance and stuff like that. Um, you can obey all the rules and you can see where they're coming from, um, but you can also see where they're going too far and where they're going wrong. And I do think that the media really needs to start scrutinising some of the government's decisions a bit more, rather than just throwing bombs and saying they don't know what they're doing. Um, we need to have a proper but that might mean analysis. going against public health, and you say it's time for the government to do that in terms of public health. Well, the thing reopening. is, I, I, I didn't vote for anybody who works in public health. I voted for politicians. And I think that the, the, the country, we vote for political leaders. We don't vote for political followers. And constantly we're seeing our, who are pe the people who are meant to be our leaders saying we're following the advice. And the thing is, a lot of the times, the advice itself is mutually contradictory. So they're just picking what suits them. I just want to look at the situation in Northern Ireland because, I mean, and you know this is a Cavan Monaghan TD, pubs are opening there Friday week, isn't it? April 30th, they're in and around that. That's going to cause a real difficulty, isn't it? It is, and it is a total balancing act here. You know, as Ian said, you know, you vote for leaders and, and that's what the government are trying to do to lead and taking into consideration public health guidance as well. And I would be of the view that, yes, our pubs are one of the probably the safest places if people are going to drink in, in public spaces. They gather in parks. We've seen the evidence and the vandalism that's been caused by that too. I mean, our pubs and our publicans have been terrific when they were open in terms of providing the social distance, put, making the sanitizers and everything and trying to make the space as as safe as possible. The difficulty is, I suppose, in terms of we can all become relaxed, I suppose, in that environment too. But we have this added, I suppose, challenge now, Akira, around the corner in terms of, you know, pubs are going to reopen in the north. Uh, we have a seamless border, an invisible border that you and I both know. And uh, Helen McEntee made it very, very clear that nobody's going to be breaking any law or any regulation if they cross the border, yeah. if it's within their 20 kilometres, to go to a pub. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, and, and Kira, look, at the, the, the thing about it is, we have to remember, the vast majority of the public have been absolutely sterling in their efforts to do what they've been asked to do, to do the social distancing, to stay within whatever restrictions. You know, if you're in Cavan and you go 20 miles across the border, you're, you're not breaking any restrictions, as the Minister said. And we just need to continue, I suppose, encouraging the public to do that as much as possible because we're nearly there. Yeah. As we know, Ian, we're, we're certainly on the right side of this pandemic, please God, and we just want to continue in that vein. Uh, Ian, just very briefly, do you think the Vintners now have, have had enough? Do you think the government is going to come under real pressure to reopen the pubs come May? I hope to do. May 24th is the date that's been mentioned. But it was just when you were saying about the, the, the North uh, reopening of theirs. 
I'm old enough, I'm older than the two of you, but I'm old enough to remember when I was a kid, the, the Newry booze run that people used to do from the Republic up to, up to Newry every Christmas. Um, it's going to look like that in two weeks' time. Um, that's the unfortunate <laughs> thing. So the things, use a bit of cop on, apply this rare thing called common sense and just allow people out to make their own decisions. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Neve Smith and to uh, Ian O'Doherty. And after the break, journalist and author Megan Scully on her experiencing of having an image stolen online for a malicious fake profile. You're very welcome back. Well, an increasing amount of young women are having their image stolen to be used without consent to generate cash on malicious fake profiles, whether that be through subscription scams or full-blown blackmail. And to discuss, I'm joined on Skype by Cleena Sadlier, Chief Executive of the Rape Crisis Network Ireland, and in studio by journalist and author Megan Scully. You're both very welcome to the programme. Megan, it was only uh, yesterday we spotted on your Twitter a page that you had had an image of your yours taken from your profile and used maliciously, I suppose. Tell us exactly what happened. Yeah, so I don't have any social media notifications on my phone and I happened to put my phone down for, I'd say, 20 minutes. And then I looked at my Instagram and I had loads of direct messages, DMs as we call them, about 10, 20 messages flying in. And I just thought, okay, if I put something on my story that maybe I shouldn't have. So then I got to the messages and it was screenshots of this fake profile that had been set up using my photos on Instagram, directing people to this just fans page that is kind of like an OnlyFans. And uh, I, I was like, what is going on here? So I had reported the page. And to be fair, a lot of people reported and within five, 10 minutes, the page was gone. And just to be clear for people at home, what is just for fans and OnlyFans? So they're an adult subscription service where explicit photos are usually shared. So you can, what happens is it's like having a private Instagram account, but people have to subscribe and pay money to see your content. So some people might put up um, like racier photos and it, it depends, it can get, pretty, I guess, explicit as it goes on, the more money, I suppose, you charge. You can then maybe get into like a private conversation with someone where they might pay more to get their own private photos. You can go into a chat with someone and chat with them again. So it's all, I suppose, about making money for your content. But then they are out there in the internet. Now, what I suppose frightened me was the fact that this link was set up with my name. So I don't know, actually, because the Instagram page got deleted, I don't know what went into that link. Now, I did try go further myself to see have they used my photos in explicit nature, but um, I don't have any explicit photos, but I have heard that they are photoshopping faces onto bodies or else what they're doing is they're putting up photos from naked from the neck down. So could be pretending to be me. So they not. could potentially have taken your face yeah. off one of your pictures and superimposed it on perhaps a naked body image yeah. and said it was you. And that's what they're doing. And they're charging people then to subscribe. So the hope is that people would know it wasn't me or that it's not happening and wouldn't subscribe. But I guess there are people out there who do that. And then, you know, the, the problem then is, are those photos circulating in time to come? Will those photos be out there? Will people think that this was actually me? So this is where it gets quite damaging and quite, I suppose, disconcerting for me to think that is, is someone out there pretending to do this and sharing such photos with my name. And your followers, they had been asked to follow this separate account. That's how it came to your attention. Otherwise, would you have any way of knowing that that was out there? 
No, yes, that's what happened. So whoever set up this account went into my followers and started following all of them. And that's when they, they noticed and they got back to me and because they all had this request from this Megan Scully on social media. And to be fair, the photos they had taken on the profile were recent enough ones. Now, they're all ones of me getting ready to go on a night out or, you know, I suppose ones where I'm more done up and uh, they're the ones that they were using. But they those photos were in no way explicit. They're just selfies I have up on my Instagram fully clothed. But um, yeah, I guess the, the the problem there is what happened after that, what happened when you clicked into the site. Uh, Kleena, how widespread is this problem? So there's, there's a lot there's a, there's a lot we don't know, but there are some things we do know, and there's, there's increasing research around this. Um, we will be releasing some data on this in towards the end of May. Um, our clinical director, Dr. Michelle Walsh, has been doing research on this, and she found that 42% of adolescents had experienced online sexual harassment. Now, some of that will be of this nature that's just been described. So, I mean, I think what, what Megan is talking about, a lot of what she's talking about there in terms of the impact is is it's about the unknown you don't know what's happening there you don't know where those images have gone you don't know what type of images have been used and, and the deep faking that has gone on and and it's it's very much out of your control and so i think there's there's something there in terms of uh, looking at that common experience that everyone has around once something goes wild on the internet if you like and and the thing is we've been taught this myth that the internet is not controllable, and that that we can't actually follow those images once they're gone, that they're out, they're, they're, they've disappeared, they're out of control. That isn't actually that isn't actually true, and the government are bringing in, into in, they're, they're looking at bringing in legislation around the regulation. Um, of media in this in this manner. Now we got in contact with Instagram and they said claiming to be another person on Instagram violates our community guidelines and we have a dedicated team that's tasked with detecting and blocking these kind of scams. But Kleena, other than that, what can somebody who's been a victim of this do? They can go to the guards. There is legislation there, isn't there? How can it be used? Now, are the Absolutely. guards familiar with how, how it works, how it operates? Absolutely. So the legislation is fairly... I mean, there's always been legislation, but the specific and up-to-date legislation came in in December, and that's called COCO's Law, and there's been lots of talk about that, the Harmful Communications and Harassment and uh, Related Offences Bill, or ACT, at this stage. Um, so that defines the... the crimes it defines the harm as a crime and so that gives the, the guards really clar clarity around what they can charge in terms of these types of offences so that's really clear but it's always needed a second hand and, and as i said the um the internet companies and the social media companies they're getting ahead of this because they they know that they need to be if you like good actors within this space so they are doing the the um the regulations in-house and internally, and they are trying to take care of that internally. But what the what the Act, the um, and it's called the Online Safety uh, and Media Regulation uh, Bill, it's now a general scheme that was launched in January by the okay. Minister, and um, so it's under consultation at the moment. And that will bring that bring that regulation up to, okay. to uh, we'll, we'll get a media commissioner is the promise who will be able to to regulate um, the online companies the media All spaces right. the the video sharing spaces etc um, Megan did you have any difficulty getting this taken down and has that been everybody's experience 
For me, actually, I have to say it was great because a lot of people that notified me about it had actually reported the page. And as I think about 20 minutes, it was completely gone. As for that link, I don't know. As And I did try search to see. But when I went to the Just Fans page, you had to log in and register. So I didn't bother doing that because I, I said I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. Um, but also, as I said, I don't know then if that link is still in existence or if they've changed the name to someone else's name. But this is something that's happening on a very regular basis. And I found out that yesterday after it happened to me. So it's quite frightening that this is the case but as Instagram did say and they did do they did delete the fake account within minutes which I think was was great for me to see and it was kind of I suppose that the best thing that could come out of that. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but my thanks to all of my guests this evening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in our discussion tonight, you can contact these helpline numbers in confidence. Uh, the numbers are up on your screen now. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Cleena Sadlier and Megan Scully and all of my guests. Matt Cooper will be here tomorrow at 10pm. But until then, good night and do stay safe. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.